is Bean to Barstool, a podcast that looks at the intersections of craft beer and craft chocolate. My name is David Nelson. I'm a professional beer writer and an advanced Cicerone and the creator and host of this show. The music for this episode is by my dear friend, indie folk musician Anna P.S. You can find out more about Anna's music in the show notes or at her website, annapsmusic.com. You can find links and information about our guests in the show notes as well. I hope you enjoy this episode of Bean to Barstool. Indianapolis, Indiana, two hours west of where I live in West Central Ohio, is a city probably best known around the country for auto racing and its professional sports teams. This city with a metro population of just over 2 million has a vibrant craft beer scene as well, however, one that has been steadily pulling in national and international awards. Metazoa Brewing won Brewery of the Year at the Great American Beer Festival in 2021 and has won numerous individual beer awards at GABF and at the World Beer Cup. Sun King has been similarly decorated on beer's biggest stages, and breweries like Moontown, Taxman, and Upland have won national awards as well. While the success of the craft beer scene in Indy is relatively recent, brewing in Indianapolis is not. Prior to Prohibition, some of the largest breweries in the country called the Circle City home, and several held international acclaim. Indy is often overlooked among the best beer cities of the Midwest, but a brand new book by an Indianapolis author with an auspicious last name aims to change that. In this episode, we talk with Amy Beers, the owner of the Drinking with Beers Indianapolis Beer Tour Company and the author of the new book, Indianapolis Beer Stories, History to Modern Craft in Circle City Brewing. Amy is a certified Cicerone, and we've been beer buddies for a few years now, periodically sending each other beer and co-hosting Instagram live tastings together. In this conversation, we discuss her book, The Invisible History of Indianapolis Beer Prior to Prohibition, and the vibrant modern beer scene in central Indiana. I was born into this role basically because uh, my last name is Beers, and that is really my name. Yes. (laughs) Uh, That's being born under the right So I was born into the industry from birth. I have since become a certified Cicerone, and I give beer tours through my company called Drinking with Beers. That's Amy Beers, the author of Indianapolis Beer Stories, which was just released on Monday, July 18th by the History Press. Amy leads tours through different neighborhoods of Indianapolis, highlighting the history of Indy's brewing scene and the flavors of its modern craft breweries, and her book is an enthusiastic guide to the Indy beer scene past and present. Amy does a great job of providing in-depth historical information while keeping the book engaging and relatable, highlighting the human side of the city's industrial brewing past. I sat down with Amy recently and asked her about the process of taking on such a daunting task. When I think about 19th century and early 20th century brewing in the U.S., I think about Milwaukee, Cincinnati, and St. Louis, the German Triangle, and I forget that right in the middle is Indianapolis and You know, you highlighted a couple breweries, Terre Haute and Indianapolis Brewing, that were some of the largest and most successful in the country, which I did not realize. Right. It was very surprising things I learned about the Indianapolis Brewing Company and just how big and significant it was to the pre-Prohibition brewing era. And it's just been wiped out from memory, seemingly. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people, especially here, uh, history buffs that are really big into the Indianapolis Brewing history are all pretty much aware of the Indianapolis Brewing Company. And, you know, I kind of had a general idea about it before I started writing the book, but as I started writing, I really was able to delve into a lot of details and it was just really fun uncovering kind of some of these lost 
these lost stories. Walk us through the research portion of working on this project. I mean, this is an incredible amount of information and a lot of detail. Yeah. So in the very beginning, it's funny you mentioned all the detail and, you know, covering a lot of ground. When I first was approached with this opportunity, I thought there's no way I'm going to be able to fill a whole entire book dedicated <laughs> just to Indianapolis brewing history. I mean, maybe Indiana, but no way in Indianapolis. But as I started, you know, digging into old texts, researching newspapers, interviewing people, I realized that there's no way I'm going to be able to fit all this. But I actually, so my research, I started researching before COVID hit and I was going to the library, the physically going and bringing back physical books to my house, just stacks of these old dusty books, some of them, you know, five inches thick, multiple volumes and started, you know, looking back in the index, kind of skimming some pages, compiling uh, an outline, kind of some keywords and some and key figures I thought would be interesting to research. And as I started researching uh, these people and these events, it kind of, I just went down, I went down so many rabbit holes it was so interesting to see how everything is so connected. And I also, you know, was interviewing uh, some key figures that are, you know, still around today. It's not all just a book about dead people. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but then uh, when then COVID hit and we weren't allowed to go to these libraries, right? So during that time, I discovered that a lot of these books and these newspapers have been archived online. I mean, it's more than a simple Google search. You really had kind of had to do some digging. But once I discovered these archived texts, it allowed me to get more detailed in my storytelling. One thing that I've come across trying to research historical brewing information is that breweries didn't always keep a very good record of what they were doing. This was just daily work for them. And it didn't occur to them that a hundred years later, we would want all the details. Were you right. running into those kind of frustrating dead ends very often? I mean, I, I didn't really find any old recipes. I didn't really find any kind of records of daily operations. I think the stories are more centered on the key figures in in the brewing industry. It's more it's more about the who and the why rather than the actual production of the beer. So um, I, I got a lot of juicy little tidbits out of, of newspapers mostly. The textbooks kind of will help me put things in context and kind of give a general thing. But then like I really got really fun, nice tidbits in newspapers. Um, yeah, there were some really interesting little human elements in here that provided some very personal context for these stories that could be kind of abstract. I mean, there's the one story of the, the fire and the woman had to throw her children out the window and then jumps out yeah. in flames, like all these little things where it's like, my goodness, this is like a movie in the midst of all this historical information. Yeah. So again, it's more than the beer and, and the brewing. It's just kind of these stories that relate to the brewing industry, you know, help readers feel more connected and just kind of get a basic understanding for kind of who we were, how the brewing industry evolved and how we got to where we are today. Because I think to really be able to appreciate where we are now, we have to understand all the work that was involved in, in getting to where we are today. Were there particular stories that you really resonated with most personally while you were researching this? I don't necessarily believe in reincarnation, but I really enjoyed writing about the pre-prohibition era. I don't know. I just feel this weird connection to it. Mm -hmm. um, it just this golden era of brewing and just a lot of good stories came out of there. It just seems like such a romantic time. You know, it was kind of this industrial revolution and the height of brewing and the height of Indianapolis in general. Um, but I guess on a more personal level, um, I did a chapter about women 
in, in the brewing industry largely centers around Elise Lane, who's the owner of Scarlet Lane, her story, but it also allowed me to write about kind of the context, like when Elise came on, what was, what was the industry like then? I mean, cause women definitely were the minority. I mean, we still are, but I, I really loved writing about some of the women who have been, who have broken barriers and defied expectations and, she has you know, a really inspiring story on her own. I mean, the way she got into this, she didn't even realize this was an option that was open to her. Right. And I, I kind of felt the same way at some point about writing. I, I, I've never really had any desire to be a brewer, but there was a point in my life where I was kind of in a transition with my career and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I knew that I wanted to work in beer in some capacity. So I started reading some books and I came across this book that was written by uh, Rita Cohn. There was a part where it mentioned in Indianapolis specifically. And I thought, who wrote this? How would they even know about this? Just to discover that it was a woman writing about beer and in the town that I live in kind of changed my mind about some things. So it's like, I kind of felt like, oh, maybe there's space for me here too. So, and at least the story is, is very similar. So I guess as far as a story that resonates with me personally, that's probably the closest. What were some of the most surprising or unusual stories that you uncovered in your research? We'll be right back. Hey, everyone. Getting a Cicerone certification is an amazing way to raise your beer knowledge and can be a game changer for your beer career. But how are you supposed to find the time to prep and how are you supposed to know exactly what to study? Don't sweat because the Beer Scholar has you covered. The Beer Scholar is a sponsor of Bean to Barstool, but I can tell you from personal experience years before I was doing this podcast how helpful the Beer Scholar study guides are. They offer efficient online courses for levels one and two that cover everything you need to know, tips and tricks for how to pass the exams, and include live weekly Zooms to taste and discuss classic beer styles together. They even have a new coaching program for the level three advanced Cicerone exam. I used the Beer Scholar Study Guide to pass my Level 2 exam many years ago. I wish the Level 3 had been around when I took that exam. I had to do it on my own. Wish their study guides had been available for that at the time. The vast majority of certified Cicerones in the world today have used Beer Scholar to help achieve the goal of passing that exam. If you are ready to take your beer career to the next level, visit thebeerscholar.com and check out their online courses. I would say I had a lot of fun learning about, uh, quote unquote, the characters in my book, because these were real people, um, but they kind of started to feel like characters. And that was a lot of fun, just kind of getting to know them more intimately and also interviewing all of the people who are in today's craft beer scene, getting to know their story. Um, But as far as most surprising, just how significant the Indianapolis Brewing Company was, I mean, they were known throughout the world, but they also played a key role in helping build up the city. For example, in the late 1800s, Indiana experienced a gas boom, and it was considered to be almost like a uh, gold rush for Indiana. And this was happening mostly on the east side of the state. And Indianapolis tapped into that supply via a pipeline, and that pipeline was able to be built largely due to donations from the breweries, and which ended up bringing a lot of wealth into the city. So just seeing that relationship of how 
the brewing scene, especially in the pre-prohibition era, how much wealth it brought to the city, how much it really helped. A lot of our buildings, our old buildings were built on, on beer money. And then also seeing how, you know, beer helped shape the city as well. So just, I guess that relationship, it's something I never thought about before. I don't know. It's just not something that I feel like is talked about. Mm-hmm. I feel like the brewing history has kind of just been swept under the rug and it just had such a major impact on a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, I think it has everywhere. I feel like the United yeah. States does not realize the significance of the brewing industry before prohibition. Right. There was a, a quote in my book. I don't know if I can find it, but it was basically talking about that relationship, but it mentioned how the Indianapolis Brewing Company, I think it was in 1900 or 1905, it won grand prize gold at the, at the world's fair it was the highest honor at the time. You know, this is before the world beer cup, before right. American beer festival. This was like, this is, this was it. And they won the highest honor. And I mean, they distributed their beer all over the world. That was the Dusseldorfer beer. Yes. They won for it. I, was that an alt beer? I, I didn't see in there. It was just called like Dusseldorfer ale or something, but I assume that would be an alt beer. I would, I would assume, I would imagine that's probably the closest. Yeah. They brewed it with coffee too. So I imagine yeah. it was kind of dark. I, you just dropped that sentence in there. I'm like, wait, what? Like, as I was reading the book, because Kurt Vonnegut, the novelist, it was, is what the son or grandson of one of the brewery owners. And he revealed that they used coffee. Yes. But that was not known. Like they were not saying there was coffee in it. I don't think so. It was like a secret ingredient, but you know, enough time had passed, I think. And the brewery didn't really exist at that time. So Kurt was like, ah, plus I, he didn't really like his, uh, Albert Lieber was (laughs) ran, he didn't really like him. So he was just like. Yeah, I'm going to tell your secrets because I don't like you very much. <laughs> that seems like a Kurt Vonnegut thing to do. Yes. We were kind of a big deal. The same. <laughs> <laughs> also, I was surprised to learn that Budweiser, uh, speaking of major breweries, that Budweiser had a, a branch here in Indianapolis. Yeah. There were a few others, right? That came over. Yeah. Um, I think Paps. Schlitz I mean, came down. Yeah. Schlitz. One thing I thought was interesting looking at the more things change, the more they stay the same was... Mm-hmm. You know, in the last week, we've gotten the news of Stone Brewing being purchased by Sapporo out of Japan. And that's after Stone Brewing has spent years and years marketing themselves on independence and we will never sell to corporate beer. And there was a brewery in here. I think it was Home Brewing. Yeah. So you say the Home Brewing Company had been formed in passionate rebellion against foreign capital. However, perhaps passion and emotion stood in the way of a well thought out business decision. And it felt like, you know, this is a hundred years have passed and the craft (laughs) movement has taken off and all this stuff, but it's still the same thing when you base your brand around the image of being a rebel and independence, but then you grow to a certain size, you really can't maintain it. And that lesson hasn't been learned apparently. Right. Well, I thought, you know, you start out uh, in the early days of Indianapolis and just kind of also that you can apply this to other places as well. You have these small artisanal breweries and then you have the, you know, industrial revolution and they started commercializing beer and these breweries just grew to such proportions. And you're right, it gets to a point where it's like they can't really grow it anymore or there's just the market is is so oversaturated and there's all this competition so speaking of that foreign investment capital in the book I write about how these British syndicates were buying up all these breweries in America in general is still growing and we kind of hit this 
wall. And a lot of people felt like we could really use this additional capital to kind of further grow. And then also because the market was so oversaturated at the time, it was, it was a way to get more, you know, investment capital, but also merging helped reduce competition. And I feel like that's kind of, you know, if history comes full circle, it's like the craft beer movement was like the early taverns and you have all these small artisanal breweries, but now it's grown to such a point where it's like a lot of breweries feel like, well, if we're going to keep going, Mm -hmm. you know, we have this offer. It just kind of it's the, I guess it's just the ebb and flow of, of life. Well, so much of the identity has been based on the idea of being the little guy and the independence mm-hmm. and the hands-on craftsmanship and all that. And, mm-hmm. you know, it was all about that identity stuff and that image. And yeah, eventually those things can't necessarily stay true anymore. When you get to a certain size, like you, you, what does independence mean when you're brewing 2 million barrels a year? Right. You know, what does being a small brewery mean at that point? This is the conundrum. Like we want our small little breweries to be successful, but what, to what point? It's like loving a a band and then saying they sell out when everybody else starts liking them too. Right. Exactly. Because they want to keep up with demand. And in order to do that, you have to expand. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like there's not really any, any win. I don't know. I guess it just depends on how you look at it. Yeah. It's complicated. It it is. It's not really a, it's not a cut and dry thing. Well, let's talk about the modern Indianapolis beer scene. Give us kind of an overview introduction of beer in your city today. Oh, gosh. So the modern craft beer scene, John Hill was the first to open a brew pub in Indiana in 1990. And then it just kind of grew from there. And for a while, especially in the 90s, it was kind of the heyday of the brew pub, which is more of a you know restaurant that brews beer for the restaurant rather than existing as a production brewery. And then you have Sun King that came along. Originally, they wanted to do a brew pub, but long story short, they ended up just opening a production brewery and then it kind of all grew from there. Everyone knows everyone. It's all connected. It's pretty much a sense of community. (laughs) What would you say are some of the highlight breweries that people should hit if they're coming to Indianapolis? Um, Well, definitely you have to go to Sun King because they're Sun King, but also uh, Metazoa Brewery is, is, is up there. They had a really big year last year. They won Brewery of the Year at both the, I believe it was the Great American Beer Festival and the Indiana State Brewers Cup. I really love their Hop Eponymous IPA, constantly putting out new stuff. They actually just expanded into a larger facility and they're going to start doing more pre-prohibition style lagers, oh, which cool. is exciting. Yeah. And then of course, you know, they donate 5% of their profits to animals. If you're into history, definitely visit Indiana City Brewery, which is it's the last remaining building of Indy's pre-prohibition era. It used to be the bottling plant of the home brewing company. It was, it was a whole big complex and much of it has been demolished, but the bottling plant still remains. And that was built in 1904. That's a really cool space. Of course, you have to go to the, the Broader Hole Brew Pub since they were kind of the, you're the first in Indiana. <laughs> yeah. Are there neighborhoods that are good concentrations of breweries? You mentioned Broad Ripple. Like what else? Broad Ripple, uh, it used to be, <laughs> but now it's just the Broader Hole Brew Pub. But it's, it's so the Broader Hole Brew Pub, you could, you could spend a day or an afternoon in Broad Ripple. There's the Monon Trail, which is this, it used to be a railroad track that's been paved over into a pedestrian pathway and the brew pub's located just along there. So it makes a really nice bike ride, a really nice walk. You can stop off and have a proper English pint. Uh, Fountain Square is a good neighborhood. It has uh, Upland. It has uh, the Fountain Square Brewery, which is one of the first production breweries in Indianapolis. There's Chili Water, which is great. They're putting out some really nice loggers. They're located along the Cultural Trail. They have a really nice patio. It makes for really good people watching. Um, and the Metazoa is not too far from there. And then if you don't mind walking, a stretch, Taxman Cityway is is near there as well. 
Taxman is one of my favorite Indiana breweries and they're kind of unique with their specializing in, in Belgian yeah. beers. Yep. They've got what, four locations? Yeah, I think four. Their original location is in Bargersville and then Cityway is their newest and it's in this old livery building. It's really, it's a really neat space. Uh, you mentioned Scarlet Lane. Can you give a little bit of a personality overview of that brewery? They have a very specific theme. Yes, they are all about the macabre. It's Halloween year round. <laughs> and you know it's it's female majority owned so it's nice to go there she makes some really great beer probably most famous for her dorian stout it's her, it's her baby it's inspired from you know the book the uh what's it what's the title of dorian gray yes and they deliver their beer in a hearse they do they do and then at beer festivals they have a uh, coffin that they have made into a kegerator a tap that they pour beer from and it's just, it's a lot of fun. It's Halloween decorations year round. It's just very, it's very unique. One beer that I really enjoy out of Indiana that has a historical connection is Champagne Velvet, which is mm -hmm. brewed now by Upland. But can you talk a little bit about that historical connection with that beer? Terre Haute Brewery was the original brewery to brew Champagne Velvet. That brewery opened in 1837, uh, but they didn't start making Champagne Velvet until 1902. And it was developed by a German immigrant. For a time, the Terre Haute Brewery was one of the, was the seventh, around the turn of the century, it was the seventh largest brewery in the United States. And they had really close ties with the Indianapolis Brewing Company. And then prohibition happened and things kind of got wonky and... Mm -hmm. I think the recipe kind of got lost and it wasn't until I think it was the nineties that a uh, Terre Haute resident dug it up Oh wow! and then the rights got sold to Upland. So Upland brewery now makes it. And are they brewing that as close to that recipe as they can? I believe so. I would imagine that they're doing it as close to the original as possible. Well, what are Amy beers, desert Island, Indianapolis beers? What are your favorites that you keep if you lose everything else? Well, you have to have a good Pilsner as a go-to, um, but my go-to Pilsner in Indianapolis is Built to Last by Chili Water. And oh, their Dunkel is really good too. It's uh, the Dark Side of the Munich. Those are probably my two go-tos there. Oh, I love the two of tarts at Upland. They actually, they want, so they want to, I believe it was a gold medal at the World Beer Cup a few years ago. That's a really nice kettle sour. And it's just, but it's not too sour. It's just like a very nice, refreshing. Gosh, Upland has some really nice sours. I mean, like you said, Taxman has some a really great Belgian-inspired sour program as well. Um, Metazoa, the Hopopotamus is good if you like IPA. I mean, I, I love everything. I recently had this. So Sun King has a really nice barrel program and they put out their King's Reserve series. I recently had their Polynesian Passion. It was so good. I uh, was giving a tour. Actually, I had it. And then I went back like a week later to try to buy a, a two pack and it was already gone. It was tiki inspired. So it had some passion fruit and it, it was a barrel age beer. It was just so good. But I feel like everything of their King's Reserve series is so good. In the fall time, they have a caramel apple triple, which is really good. Do you have a favorite um, from Scarlet Lane? Their Dorian Stout, the coconut version is really good. So what are some essential beer experiences if somebody is visiting Indianapolis? Can I give a shameless self-plug? Absolutely. Tell people to take my tours. Yes. Tell us about your tour. What, what happens? Uh, you really have to come experience the Drinking With Beers beer tours. So they're walking tours and one tour is in Fountain Square. It's a evolution of craft beer in Indianapolis. And the other one is in Mass Ave and it's called Taste of Europe. And I've curated all the beer on the list. It, it, I weave in some history um, it's just a really fun, fun time to try something new and gain a deeper appreciation for the beer that you're drinking. Also something really exciting that is happening, Newfield, the art museum is kind of actually a whole 
cultural complex, but they just opened their brand new beer garden and it's just a beautiful beer garden. And uh, LJ, Lindsay Joe, she's was the second Cicerone to become certified in Indianapolis. And she curated all the beer for that. She has some really nice German imports as well as some local. That would be uh, another top experience for beer lovers coming to Indy. Awesome. Second only, of course, to my tour. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I have to get over there and take the tour sometime. I yes. do love Fountain Square. It's a beautiful little neighborhood. It is. It's so fun. It's like this, you know, you have Mass Ave, which is kind of like the trendy part of town. You have that new Bottleworks district and uh, it's a fun time. St. Joseph Brewery is close to there, but uh, Fountain Square to me is kind of like the quirky cousin to Mass Ave. It's like, I like to call it Indy's Little Bohemia. Yeah. It feels a little overlooked. It, it, I think so. It, it, there's a lot of nice independent shops and restaurants. And of course there's some fantastic breweries all within walking distance. Um, you can really make a whole day of it or just book my tour and I'll take you around for a couple hours <laughs> and tell you about everything. <laughs> all right, Amy. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me, David. I'm happy to confirm that Indianapolis is full of fantastic beer. Upland's Champagne Velvet is one of my favorite summer patio beers, and Taxman brews some of the best Belgian ales this side of the Atlantic. Sun King's beers are consistently excellent, and I recently got to try Moontown for the first time and found their Schoolhouse Bach and Bright Side of the Moon to be fantastic. And as an unrepentant lifelong fan of all things horror, I love pretty much everything about Scarlet Lane, so keep an eye out for more about them here in the coming months. You can purchase Indianapolis Beer Stories, History to Modern Craft, and Circle City Brewing wherever books are sold. Please prioritize indie booksellers if you can. And you can find out more about Drinking with Beers, tours for the beer curious, at Amy's website, drinkingwithbeers.com. I'll put all the links in the show notes, as well as the link to order tickets for my Autumn in Belgium virtual tasting. Thanks again to my friend Amy Beers for coming on the show, and to all of you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Bean to Barstool.